Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. A hearty thanks to the members of our Patreon who attended our first Coffee House chat this Saturday. It was especially pleasant to see the newest members of our Patreon junto and the winners of our third listener giveaway. Please join me in congratulating Stuart and Sue McHenry, who are the proud recipients of a year's supply of Franklin's finest coffee from our friends at Ready Hour. If it wasn't delightful enough declaring them the winner, it was even more delightful to have the privilege to deliver the coffee in person to them for the looks upon their face alone. Thank you so much, Sue and Stuart, for pledging your support to our endeavor, and for being so geographically close. I can't imagine what it would have cost to deliver that barrel through the post. Now, if you wish to fully vest yourself in our junto and pledge your support to our Patreon, the link can be found in our show notes. Now, my beloved junto... Today's episode has fallen on yet another momentous anniversary. I declare, dear listener, if this continues to happen, you're going to start believing I'm doing this quite on purpose. Which, of course, I am. Masterfully. A razor-keen precision goes into every atomy of Let's Be Frank, and I'll demand satisfaction of any Catiline who says otherwise. Right. The anniversary. On this day... 247 years ago, the Fifth Virginia Convention adopted the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the 16 articles that would inspire many of the state's declarations of rights and go on to inform our Federal Bill of Rights, a perfect lead-in to today's episode. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life— knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is the third installment in our series, Chasing Independence, that distills the heady writing of the Enlightenment and presents it in quick 15-minute philosophical lessons to not only enhance the understanding of one of our most aspirational founding documents, but equally how best to relate to the government of your time. Our first installment featured Jean-Jacques Rousseau and focused on the theorem of the social contract and consent of the governed. Part two was Emer de Vattel and the law of nations, the idea of national sovereignty. Today, we're going to expand on these ideas and begin to explore the general spirit of nations and how it shapes their character beyond law or rule. We're also going to discuss the separation of powers. Now, for the setting. When we last left the story, the verbose Virginian Thomas Jefferson 
was presenting his draft of the declaration to Mr. John Adams and yours truly. Together, 47 revisions, deletions, and alterations would find their way into the declaration before it was ever presented to the Congress. One of the greatest changes to our Declaration of Independence that I claim personal responsibility of was a particular clause in the preamble. On June 21st, after he had finished a draft and incorporated some changes from Adams, Jefferson had a copy delivered to me. The note upon it was very polite, I might add. He said, Will Dr. Franklin be so good as to peruse it, he wrote and suggest such alterations as his more enlarged view of the subject will dictate. Oh, Thomas, you are such a flatterer. Now, I made only a few small changes, but one of them was prolific. In the preamble, Mr. Jefferson had written, We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal. Sacred and undeniable. The phrase wouldn't do. Using a heavy stroke of the pen, I crossed it out, and instead I inserted the words self-evident. Reluctantly, for Jefferson, the phrasing stuck. Now why would I make such a change as that? Well, there are the obvious distinctions that need be made between matters theological and political. But there's also, dear listener, a much simpler explanation. Now, I'm a man of science, a lover of reason, a student of minds like Newton, Hume. Now, in an age where truth is defined in multiple facets, and man comes to hold truth with certain faculties, where is there more power in possession of truth? Sacred and undeniable insinuates some external force, compelling and coercing truth. But self-evident, that broaches an internal compulsion, a truth derived from within, without intermeddling of some external force. Certain, not because of what an outward authority may dictate, but what an individual arrives at. Now, I personally find that to be a much more American concept. We're nearing July of 1776 and the finale ultimo on our road to independence. The story, for now, is to be continued. Now, something remarkable is taking place far away from Philadelphia throughout the colonies of North America. The colonies have begun building new governments to replace the old regime. Certain provinces, like New Hampshire, had already drafted these governments. The Constitution of New Hampshire would be complete on the 5th of January, 1776, the first independent American framework of government. Virginia's Constitution would be ratified on the 29th of June with a great many of the remaining colonies using the examples set by small New Hampshire and large Virginia in framing their systems of government. When the first draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights was printed in Philadelphia on the 12th of June, the same day it would be ratified in Virginia's capital, a great many of its sentiments and phrases would creep into the Declaration of Independence. 
one section of that Declaration of Rights leads perfectly into today's philosopher. Taken from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, Section 5, that the legislative and executive powers of the state should be separate and distinct from the judiciary, and that the members of the two first may be restrained from oppression by feeling and participating the burdens of the people, they should, at fixed periods, be reduced to a private station, return into that body from which they were originally taken, and that the vacancies be supplied by frequent, certain, and regular elections in which all or any part of the former members to be again eligible or ineligible as the laws shall direct. Separation of powers, checks, and balances, these building blocks are the foundations on which our state governments and eventually our federal government operate. Power rebuffs power. To quote James Madison, ambition checks ambition. It's what allows a republic of our size and scale to operate with any degree of harmony. Separation of powers is by no means an American invention. We owe its implementation to today's philosopher, who was said to lift the veil from the venerable errors which enslaved opinion and pointed the way to those luminous truths of which he had but a glimpse himself. Today's philosopher... For Chasing Independence, Part 3, is Charles Louis Secondat, the Baron de Montesquieu. The Baron de Montesquieu was a French philosopher, writer, and political theorist. His work, The Spirit of the Laws, is considered to be one of the most important political texts of the Enlightenment. Montesquieu was born into a wealthy family, educated in law, he inherited his family's fortune in 1716 and began to travel throughout Europe, studying the political systems of different countries. His travels and observations greatly influenced his political theories, which emphasized the importance of a separation of powers in government, with each branch having its own distinct responsibilities. In 1748, he published his most renowned work, The Spirit of the Laws, said by him to be the culmination of 20 years of careful work. It was received well across the world. Across the channel, David Hume exalted it, calling Secundat an author of great genius, as well as extensive learning, and declared that he had written the best system of political knowledge that perhaps has ever been communicated to the world. Hume predicted the spirit of the laws would be the wonder of all centuries. So, my dear Junto, let's see for ourselves. Let's see if Montesquieu's spirit of the laws can stretch between 1748 to your time, and see if these ideas can truly be the wonder of centuries. The spirit of the laws is composed of 31 volumes, or books, and span the better part of a thousand pages. What we cover here today will hardly do it justice, but methods to access the whole of the text will be left in the journal section for those possessed with the time and desire. Now we'll begin, dear listener, with the branches found in government according to Montesquieu. In every government, there are three sorts of power, the legislative, 
the executive in respect to things dependent on the law of nations, and the executive in regards to things that depend on the civil law. Now, in our time, we might know those branches of government to be the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. But we're still at the beginning of discussing branches of government and the separation of powers. By virtue of the first, the prince or magistrate enacts temporary or perpetual laws and amends or abrogates those that have already been enacted. By the second, he makes peace or war sends or receives embassies, establishes the public security, and provides against invasions. By the third, he punishes criminals, or determines the disputes that arise between individuals. The latter we shall call the judiciary power, see? And the other simply the executive power of state. This sounds somewhat familiar to what Immer de Vittel talked about as far as the purposes of government. Montesquieu is speaking of the executive as the prince or the king, because that's, of course, the model he's utilizing. But in America, we know that executive to be in the form of a governor, or, eventually, president. The political liberty of the subject is a tranquility of the mind that arises from the opinion each person has of his safety. In order to have this liberty, it is requisite the government be so constituted as one man need not be afraid of another. When the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person, or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty. Again, there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers. Were it joined with the legislative, the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control. For the judge would then be the legislator. Were it joined to the executive power, the judge might behave with all the violence of an oppressor. There would be an end of everything where the same man or the same body, whether of the nobles or of the people, to exercise those three powers, that of enacting laws that of executing the public resolutions, and that of judging the crimes or differences of individuals. Now, if these be the branches with each government, how might a government be divided based on its primary qualities? Montesquieu divides them into three species. There are three species of government, republican, monarchical, and despotic. In order to discover their nature, it is sufficient to recollect the common notion, which supposes three definitions, or rather, three facts, that a republican government is that in which the body, or only a part of the people, is possessed of the supreme power, monarchy, that in which a single person governs by fixed and established laws, a despotic government, that in which a single person directs everything by their own will, and caprice. This is what I call the nature of each government. We must now inquire into those laws which directly conform to this nature, and consequently are the fundamental institutions. Montesquieu then goes on to define the primary drive of government. What spirit drives each individual form of government? For monarchy, it is honor. For despotism, fear. And a republic, virtue. He continues... What I have here advanced is confirmed by the unanimous testimony of historians, 
and is extremely agreeable to the nature of things. For it is clear that in a monarchy, where he who commands the execution of the law generally thinks himself above them, there is less need of virtue than in popular government, where the person entrusted with the execution of the laws is sensible of his being subject to their direction. Clear is it also that a monarch who, through bad advice or indolence, ceases to enforce the execution of the laws may easily repair the evil. He is only to follow other advice or to shake off this indolence. But when, in a popular government, there is a suspension of the laws, as this can proceed only from the corruption of the republic, the state is clearly undone. Let us compare what the historians of all ages have asserted concerning the courts of monarchs. Let us recollect the conversations and sentiments of people of all countries in respect to the wretched character of courtiers, and we shall find that these are not airy speculations, but truths confirmed by a sad and melancholy experience. Ambition, in idleness, meanness, mixed with pride, a desire of riches without industry, aversion to truth, flattery, perfidy, violation of engagements, contempt of civil duties, fear of the prince's virtue, hope from his weakness, but, above all, a perpetual ridicule cast upon virtue are, I think, the characteristics by which most courtiers in all ages and countries have been constantly distinguished. Now, it is exceedingly difficult for the leading men of the nation to be knaves and the inferior sort to be honest, for the former to be cheats and the latter to rest satisfied with being only dupes. Virtue in a republic is a most simple thing. It is a love of the republic. It is a sensation and not a consequence of acquired knowledge, a sensation that may be felt by the meanest as well as by the highest person in the state. When the common people adopt good maxims, they adhere to them more steady than those whom we call gentlemen. It is very rarely that corruption commences with the former. Nay, they frequently derive from their imperfect life a stronger attachment to the established laws and custom. A love of the republic in a democracy is a love of the democracy, as the latter is that of equality. A love of the democracy is likewise that of frugality, since every individual ought here to enjoy the same happiness with the same advantages. They should consequently taste the same pleasure and form the same hopes, which cannot be expected but from a general frugality. The love of equality in a democracy limits ambition to the sole desire, to the sole happiness of doing greater service to our country than the rest of our fellow citizens. They cannot all render her equal service, but they all ought to serve her with equal alacrity. At our coming into the world, we contract an immense debt to our country, which we can never discharge. Hence, distinctions here arise from the principle of equality, even when it seems to be removed by signal services or superior abilities. I think the best quote for Montesquieu to close upon on this same theme, the good sense and happiness of individuals depend greatly upon the mediocrity of their abilities and fortunes. Therefore, 
as a republic where the laws have placed many in a middling station is composed of wise men, it will be wisely governed. As it is composed of happy men, it will be extremely happy. A republic will ever reflect its people. Therefore, at every turn, it will be left to a people to keep their republic. Like the other philosophers we've discussed, Montesquieu would not live to see an independent America, nor see how his theorems could be applied to a new experiment in republican government. But the testament of his work would see a living embodiment in the form of his grandson, who in 1781 would assist the American army alongside the French in securing our independence at the Battle of Yorktown, indeed helping turn the world upside down. Now, what lesson can we apply with today's installment? Looking at the Baron de Montesquieu's work, all governments, no matter their form, are equipped with a general spirit that moves them. Their principal qualities may be fear, honor, or virtue, but it is this quality that directs how they governed and how the governed may relate to them. When directing the government of your own life, my beloved Junto, where you move through the world and make the choices that lead either to your happiness or misfortune, what spirit will you be guided by? Will you choose honor and seek retribution for every imagined slight for the sake of reputation? Will you lean upon fear? and never waver outside the bounds of your own comfort, or endeavor to control others to your ends, or will you instead choose virtue, and put the common good of others, and indeed of your country, before your own interest? What spirit will you be governed by? I suspect the answer, dear listener, is self-evident. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.